This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. What does someone do after an illustrious 25-year career as an executive in private growth equity when you feel like it's just the halftime of your life? That's the big question my guest today began asking herself a few years ago, but she had a vision. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz Bruner. Welcome to Live Your Best Life. My guest not only had a vision, but she has recreated her life and is now helping others do the same with her lifestyle media company, The Verse Media. Stephanie Carter, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm such a big fan of this podcast that being on it feels a little surreal because I'm always listening to your wonderful guests talk about their own reinventions, and I always pick up such great advice from it. Well, thank you for that. And congratulations to you because The Verse Media is celebrating its first anniversary. That is so amazing. Launching a startup, any startup, is a daunting task no matter what your age is. How does it feel to have reached this first milestone? It feels great, honestly. It feels especially great given the year that we've had. If you cast yourself back, we met because I was going to be speaking at South by Southwest to talk about 50 being the new 30 and talk with other leaders of companies that were addressing this second half market. I feel good to have made it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this has been a real pivoting year. I think I've been thrown into the deep end of embracing uncertainty, just trying to do the next right thing Mm -hmm. and roll with it and be okay with not having all the answers. And that's a hard, hard thing for many of us, particularly if we're type A people. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It really is. You mentioned just a moment ago, and I love this phrase, that 50 is the new 30. And I know the goal with the verse is to reach the so-called baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, of which there are 71 million of us in the United States alone. And you really consider what you call this the ritual of halftime. What does that mean? I'm a huge sports fan, and I should add in there, I'm a Gen Xer, so we're speaking to Gen Xers too, but it is only the most Gen X thing ever that you skipped over the Gen Xers. (laughs) We're, (laughs) We're forever trying to get our space. I am a huge sports fan. What really struck me about this moment is it's not just my assertion. We are seeing it in the actual data. We really are living longer and we are starting to get to where it will not be as uncommon for someone to live to 100 and to do that well. I thought of this as, wow, I'm, I'm turning 50, I'm 52 now, but when I was first conceiving of this and I thought it's only halftime. I think we grew up with the conception that when you are 50, you're on the downhill slope and you're close to the end <laughs> and you should sort of go, you know, hide yourself behind the bush and, and just go gracefully. The ritual of halftime in sports is so the team can come together and think about how they played the first half. Part of that is assessing what went well and, and what served them 
thinking about how they want to change for the second half to produce a win, ideally. That is where I really see myself and so many other people like me is viewing it as this is a time to take a pause and think about what went really well, but what served me in the first part of my life and my career, my first career, is not going to serve me now. (laughs) This year has, has brought that home. And we talked a little bit about this dealing with uncertainty. The other thing that's been very humbling and hard. I would not sugarcoat it. The verse is about no BS. So I'm not here with some great platitude about it. I was at the top of my field and I was a master of the universe. I knew what I was doing. I could probably do a lot of it on autopilot. Not that I did. I'm not that type of person. I had people under me that I was mentoring and, you know, that were picking up certain pieces of the work. I really am back at Grasshopper Mm -hmm. and I am really having to cultivate the ability to ask for help, to go back and learn things, ask younger people to reverse mentor me about things that I just hadn't touched in a long time because I was in a management position. I just hadn't been in the engine room in a really long time. Right. Pivoting to something entirely different, I've really had to get back there. And I did get some wise advice from a coach that I work with. He said to me, get close to your processes again, because I was really frustrated. I couldn't even direct people that were doing things for me as to what I wanted. Right. I lack the lingo and I lack the understanding. Yeah, I got online and there's a video for everything. Um, <laughs> Thank and, goodness. <laughs> you know, you know, had to learn MailChimp, which our newsletter is delivered on. I had to learn Squarespace, which my website is built on. I mean, I wasn't aspiring to master it and be able to do it myself. I just was lacking an understanding of the capabilities. I thought that was really wise advice, but it hadn't occurred to me that it had been a really long time since I had been close to processes that had long ago been delegated. Sure. You mentioned just a moment ago your successful career, and I want to take you back because as you reflect on your first half, you admit that you were on this treadmill of never-ending striving. You were addicted to email, the rush and the busyness of all. You were hugely successful raising more than a billion dollars for the firm's funds. So when did you realize that you wanted or needed to make a change? What happened? I think it was slow because it is really hard to part with what your conception has been of where you were going to go. And I was the ultimate company cheerleader. I really loved the firm. I don't think I let my mind even think that I would end my career anywhere else. We had a difficult fundraise. Fundraising is never perfect. You hit the market and you have a lot of outside forces. (laughs) Another thing that has honed my ability to deal with uncertainty. At that moment, I almost really had to think what else I could do, because if the fundraise didn't come together, there wasn't going to be, you know, a real long term future. So I had to let my mind go there. I was almost forced to. Mm -hmm. And that was good. But I got through this really difficult fundraise and through a lot of creativity and a lot of sweat and tears brought it together. I said, okay, I'm not making any big decisions for a year. 
I think my mind just kept wandering and sort of a seal had been broken that I had kind of been forced to think of myself outside this place that I had really grown up. I think the second thing was I was working with an executive coach and I really kept getting to be a more accomplished manager, to be better at my job. And I was really growing. I was starting to grow past what was really possible. I realized I was hitting my head on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk about that striving, when you're always striving upwards, and I think so many of us do this you don't think I'm going to actually get to the top and there may be no other peak ahead of me in this place that I am. And that, that was becoming clear. I felt capable, and I don't say this with arrogance, I felt capable of running the place, but that wasn't ever going to happen. It's Mm -hmm. not what happens at these businesses. I'm not very good at dealing without challenge. Could I have put it on cruise control? and, you know, lived out my days there, sure. I would have been shortchanging the woman that I was mentoring under me. And I had always managed her like she was going to take my job. It just wasn't really right for me to do that. And then you got to the big hole of the question of, well, what would I do if not this? Right. And I wasn't going to do it for another firm because, you know, that I had about as much influence and as much latitude as anyone could have at one of these firms. So I that wasn't really on the table. I love sports so much. You can tell as I've professed many times. (laughs) And I also love entertainment. I love media. I love movies. I've been on the board of a theater. I've been on the board of film festival, a school for the arts. Uh, So I thought maybe I'm going to work in one of these two fields. And I started reaching out through my network. But what I really realized, and I got in front of all the right people. It's not like I was unable to pursue them. But when I got close, I really realized that they had no idea what to do with an accomplished executive that was 50 years old in front of them. If I was 22 seeking a job, they would have had something. They would have known what to do. And it made me think so many other people must be going through this. Exactly. Either forced to or by choice. As I looked around for things to read, I just really found a dearth of people addressing people at this age. And, you know, the verse isn't all about career advice. It's it's about a lot of life things. I always say it's by grownups for grownups. We try to write it from the point of view of someone who's lived a little life yeah. and has some experience under their belt, but has some curiosity and would like pragmatic steps. We're very prone to action, but that's really a long way of saying that it was a trip for sure. (laughs) It always is. You leave your job, you move cities, you start this company, you change banks, you do it all in one one year. (laughs) And any one of those life-altering moments would have been enough for most people. How did you do it all, all at the same time? I think it was almost better to do it all at the same time. By the way, the bank part was the hardest part (laughs) because I was in this weird crossover of figuring out what of the kajillion, you know, electronic payments were going where. I grew up in upstate New York and like Boston, you have a lot of (laughs) bad weather. They teach you that when you drive on ice, that if you start spinning, that you counterintuitively turn into the spin. 
rather mm-hmm. than slamming on your brakes and turning the other way. And I always feel that way about change. If if you're going to do it, you just turn with it. I think it was helpful in some ways, but in some ways, I think it magnified all the things that are hard about change. Change is never easy, no, no matter what age, but it, as you get older, I think it is harder. <laughs> it It absolutely is. And I think our great task is because I think we're, our life, our world is going to be so dynamic, whether mm-hmm. it's because of technology, because of demographics, because of world order changing, we're going to have more of what I read in a book called Transitions, he calls life quakes where Mm. a bunch of things happen at once, we are going to have to become adept at rolling with that change, going through it. And I think the thing is, is to let yourself feel discombobulated, to let yourself, I think, just detox from the last kind of role you were in. I heard this question, which is, who are you without the doing? Exactly. And I think that for me, that really encapsulated what I went through in the last year, because of course, I'm putting out a bi-monthly newsletter, we're doing events, and I'm trying to build this company, but it's so different. It's forcing me to be creative and to draw on different things. And I had really just been in this world where it was go, 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 and you have this random reinforcement of your email and you snack on it and it makes you feel like you're productive and efficient. And I think when you step away, you really have to give that some space and sort of (laughs) honor that you're making a really big change. I think that was hard at first. I would almost feel like something was missing or I had lost an appendage or I just was anxious and not knowing why I was anxious. I said this to someone. I said, oh, you know, I feel this anxiety, like something's missing or something's left undone. They said, well, what did you do when you were in your job? And I said, oh, (laughs) there was always a problem. There was always something Something to solve. solve. That's true for everybody who makes that kind of a change. You know, who are you without the doing, without the title, without the adrenaline rush? It is a struggle. And you do have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You and really I think do. everybody's gotten a taste of that this year. No kidding. Because I think of friends who probably travel five days a week mm-hmm. for their jobs. And I think we're all being asked to sit with ourselves a little bit more this year. I think it's a good thing if we can harness it and use it to our advantage and take the insights that it's giving us. We shouldn't think about coming back out of this and we shouldn't keep our pre-COVID benchmarks as the right benchmarks Mm. coming out of this. Good advice. Your husband, Ash Carter, is the former Secretary of Defense, and you had the opportunity when he was in office to travel the world and make a difference for military families and veterans, even earning the Distinguished Public Service Award from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 2017. What did you learn during that experience of all that travel? I learned that the world's a really big place. And that was important because when you're in your job, when you're in your little cluster, you probably don't challenge enough where you're fitting in the grand scheme of things. 
The other thing I learned is just the absolute dedication and professionalism and resilience of both our military members and their families. That was just inspiring. I think first that people still voluntarily sign up to do something bigger than themselves. You can't help but start to think about the own meaning in your own work, right? Mm -hmm. The meaning in your work or you know, whatever you do for work, or it can be child rearing, it can be volunteering, whatever you do, you think about what the meaning of it is. That was always very gratifying. We went to Walter Reed, saw a lot of wounded warriors. People said, oh, that must be so depressing. And it wasn't, it wasn't. The exact opposite, (laughs) It was so uplifting. These people and their families were resilient. They were fighters. I just was in awe of them. And you start to think about, oh, God, that traffic light I was stopped at, that I was annoyed at. Like, how stupid is that, right? Mm -hmm. And there's one person that I'm still really close with, and he just touched my heart. He just was so exuberant. He lost two legs below the knee, and he had a bunch of other injuries. He has now run triathlons and marathons. I remember seeing him early days and saying to him, you are so positive. If you can get past these surgeries, because people go through endless surgeries, you can get out of this bed. You are going to just light the world on fire. And he's a motivational speaker now. And it's (laughs) what it's what I always thought he should be. So that was incredibly uplifting. The last thing was the thing that is very somber and hard is going to Dover. And I'm really glad that we did it because their family deserves a senior leader who made decisions about where they were. That is just horrible to watch people who have maybe found out like 48 hours before by some adrenaline, they have gotten themselves to Dover and they don't know that things are going to get very real when Mm -hmm. that casket is brought off the plane. And that is so hard to watch and Mm -hmm. so human and awful. But it taught me that you have to, as a leader, which Ash was, you have to be really accountable for your decisions. I think sometimes when people talk about those decisions lightly, I never saw those decisions made lightly, and I always saw leaders staring down the consequences of their decisions. Mm, Tough stuff. All right, we're going to shift it up a little bit here. You do interviews with so many guests for your website and your newsletter, and you're very fond of asking them a few lightning round questions. So it's (laughs) only fitting, Stephanie, that I ask you some of the same questions and give me some of those same quick responses. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's fair. It's fair, fair. Okay. Number one, last thing that surprised you. I hate to say it, but the storming of the Capitol, and maybe I shouldn't Mm. have been surprised, but I really don't care what your politics are. It's such a sacred place, and that was really shocking. So I'm looking for more happy surprises, but that that really did surprise me. What would you say to your older self? I I know this sounds trite. I would say stop worrying about what other people think. Mm, That's a a good one. It's a tough one, but it's a good one. (laughs) All right. I don't know if I can call you a sneakerhead, but I know you love designer sneakers. Favorite sneaker? <laughs> Currently, my favorite favorites are my Stan Smiths because they're old school and I've been rocking them since the eighth grade. But 
my my favorite addition recently is I have golden goose high tops that have a little shearling on them. And I don't know if you're like me right now. Everything that I own needs to be fleecy or furry. Comfy. Or, <laughs> yeah. So those are providing some good COVID comfort right now. All right. Last question. What do you refuse to give an F about? Well, I would I would like to say it's what other people think, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's being honest I, and authentic. I, I, I think I refuse to give an F about keeping with the theme, my potty mouth. I just, that is who I am. I've always been a swearer and I don't think I'm going to stop or behave anytime soon. Well, you've done a good job for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Liz, uh, Liz, I know it's a family podcast. It is a family show, right. (laughs) You have a lot of optimism and excitement uh, when it comes to helping people, particularly about their second half time here. And to me, that sounds like you're living your best life. Is that your definition? Yeah. Yeah. I think getting up every day and being excited, but I think most of all, you know, especially poignant because we just celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. What are you doing for others? I think helping people, it really gives me a charge. I love it. Well, Stephanie's website, The Verse, says every Sunday morning they serve up no BS content tailored for grownups. And you can just go to theversemedia.com, theversemedia.com, and sign up for her newsletter and catch up on what she says are the next level ideas to help you make your move and do things better. (laughs) Stephanie, a pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you for sharing your fun and serious self with us today. Thank you so much, Liz, for all that you do. And thank you for tuning in. May each of you, no matter your age, find a way to make sure that you're living your best life and that it's your definition and not someone else's. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.